today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Harking back to uh, being a kid sitting in front of the TV set and watching my father throw his slipper at the uh, TV set during Hockey Night in Canada after another Leaf disappointment. On that note, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, sports columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, and is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I think your dad threw shoe, shoes at the TV like an Iraqi... No, not his shoes, his slipper. No, his slipper. Not not a sh- not a shoe. His his <laughs> slipper was soft. It was a foam tread, so it oh, would maybe yeah. it would maybe take out the Blue Mountain pottery on the top of the television set, but it wouldn't actually harm the television set. Not like taking your beetle boot off and throwing it at there, your work boot. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. No doc marks. But I do. Not a word of a lie. I remember as a kid, and I think I'm sure it was only once uh that my dad was so ticked off and i was quite young i don't even know what year it was and i ah, god dang leaps and he takes his slipper off and he throws it at the television set and you know i think leaf fans have been enduring that for a long time now i yeah except i think that we're now at the point where the expectation is that something will go wrong and so i don't know that people are still winging slippers because they just kind They're of used to it that it's going to be a challenge yeah. So, uh, obviously a great comeback last night, but, uh, not enough when it came to an overtime, uh, overtime goal. You know me, I'm a NASCAR fan. I'm an F1 fan. I, you know, uh, stick and ball. Can, you know, I love jumping up on, uh, on the bandwagon at this time of the year, but uh, can these guys do it? Are they tough enough to, to do this? Can they win this? This has been, Scott, this has been the knock against this franchise now for years that they don't have a killer instinct. And, you know, exactly. It's like they're all good on paper, but there's no tough guys. And again, I'm not looking to get into a brawl every game. It's just they don't seem to get to the puck fast. Well, they have all series and and most of the season they have. But, you know, you go back to the Boston, the the infamous Boston Game 7 collapse and had them on the ropes. No killer instinct. And Columbus had a chance last year. No, this has been the knock against them. And so everyone was saying, all right, look. They've shown more of a killer instinct at times this year, so we'll see when they have the chance to really, um, you know, put their foot down and really put Montreal away. Let's see what they got. And it wasn't that they didn't come back, as you say, with a great comeback. It was that they showed up at the start of the game looking like it was men's beer league and didn't yeah. really matter what the outcome was. And then all of a sudden, they kind of got into their. They went to the dressing room and they went. Oh, I guess we're supposed to be like trying in this yeah. game. I'm not sure. Yeah. We, we, so that's been the knock, and uh, you know the comeback gives. Uh, look, they've been by far the better team in this series. By far, take Carey Price out of the equation. Yeah, and the Canadians lose this series in three games. They don't even play the fourth one. I mean, that's how much that's how lopsided it's been at times. Carey Price has been unbelievable for Montreal, but. You have to beat them, and you have to show up, and you have to do what you've been doing in the series, and that was the knock. Once again, where was that killer instinct that the really good teams have? And they ha- they, Scott, they still haven't shown it when it mattered. So, obviously, heading back to Montreal with a limited amount of people in the stands. I think they're looking at like 2,500, but I'm, I'm, I'm guessing they're going to be the loudest 2,500 uh, in the province. How does that factor into this? Uh, you know, look, it, if the Leafs are thrown by the fact that there are 2,500 fans in an arena that holds, I think, 21,000, they they got much bigger problems yeah. than if they advance because down the road they're going to play the American teams where they're going to have a full arena. And if you can't, if you're 
getting bent out of shape and nervous and anxious about 2,500 fans, you may as well just forfeit when you get to the semifinals if you were mm. to make it that far. So, the, the, I, I like look, they, these guys have played in front of crowds much, much, much bigger than that all their life. I know that it's not what they're used to this year. That's, you know, by the time the warm-up is done and maybe the opening and maybe the first two or three minutes, it's normal. It, it's just, it's everyday normal life. I, I, I really don't see... 2,500 fans being able to offer any kind of in, kind of intimidation factor or even any kind of momentum factor for the Canadians, even if you get rolling, because it's 2,500 fans. I mean, the, the, the canned music has been louder in the arenas hmm. during this time. So, uh, again, if, if this is the kind of thing that could throw the, loot, the lease off, yeah. they got way they got way bigger issues than, than what they're facing. So can they finish it off this weekend, or do you think this is going to go seven? Uh, well, um, let's see if somehow <laughs> that killer instinct is in that DNA and the new DNA of this team somewhere. They don't, you know, no team that has a three, one lead wants to go to game seven. You don't want to be giving another team the momentum and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the Leafs really should be treating this game like their game seven. They really should. I mean, mm-hmm. because in a game seven, when you've got Carey Price in net, for the other team who has shown what he can do, uh, you are you are playing with absolute dynamite, and the wick is already lit. I mean, you do not want to get there. So this really has to be their Game 7, and we're going to see an awful lot on Saturday night about that killer instinct that the Leafs may or may not have. Because if they come out again with another poopy start like that and just sort of let Montreal do what they want, don't push back until too late... Um, you know, boy, that, that's going to say an awful lot about this team. Uh, I meant to ask you this last time I had you on. Uh, your thoughts on Gretzky moving away from the Edmonton organization and getting into TV? Yeah, you know, uh, it's, it's a really interesting one because obviously in the States, and this is for American TV coverage, Wayne Gretzky is the one name that most Americans know, even if they know nothing about hockey. So they've hired him for his name because... I love Wayne Gretzky as a player. I mean, he was, he was, we all remember what he was and there's, there's no knocking Wayne Gretzky, but he's not, you know, if you've ever watched the NBA on TNT, he's not Charles Barkley. He's not Shaquille O'Neal. He's not a guy that he's not even the guys that are on hockey night in Canada. He's not wildly entertaining as a talker. No, I agree. And if you're, if the expectation is that he is going to carry an intermission or carry a halftime show with, you know, like, something that really gets your attention or, or is controversial or anything like that. Like, no, that that's not him. So it'll be interesting to see how they use him and what they want him to do. But I, I'm, I'll, I'm, I'm a little hesitant on this one. Cause I just, I just don't see him as the guy that kind of fits that, that role as a, as a, as a guy who can really be not even an agitator, but someone who mm. will say something that'll make you sit up in your chair and go, oh, oh, okay, oh, oh, okay. He's, oh, yeah. He said that. That I'll be shocked if there's ever a moment when we get a bit of news moving across the internet or Twitter going crazy. Go, did you hear what Gretzky said? I, I yeah. can't fathom that's hmm. going to be the case. Interesting. We'll see. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, sports columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. Make sure you're listening tonight. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. You too. Stay warm and dry. All right, we go around in circles in Indianapolis when we return. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. This weekend, Indy 500, big, uh, big racing weekend. Uh, Indy 500, Coca-Cola 600 in Charlotte, and then the Monaco Grand Prix, I believe it is. Uh, so lots of, uh, lots of going around. Let's bring in Eric Thomas, host of the Raceline Radio Network, heard here on CHML every Sunday night and is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, we're good. And anytime you can start a segment with a down child blues band, Pretty tasty. Pretty tasty, yeah. I would say. There you go. There you go. Uh, let me make one cor- yeah, let me make one correction on your little intro there. Uh, normally, the Monaco Grand Prix would be on Memorial Day weekend, but because of the COVID shifts on schedules, that was last week. That's so what that's I thought. It, yeah, so no, no. It's, it, it, every, the COVID's got everything all, all weird because this used to be the trifecta weekend, right? Yes, Coke, yes. Coke's, Coke 600 Marathon at Charlotte, the Indianapolis 500 earlier in the day, and then you know, and on, on Sunday, early in the morning, you had... The Monaco Grand Prix, but they're off until they go to Azerbaijan uh, at Baku on the uh, next weekend. In, in All June right, and then, so that's that's the deal there. Let's talk about F one coming to Indy to race. We have that again this year um, uh, with the driver who who I think with the Haas team Grosjean who just survived an incredibly fiery crash, and yeah. now he's uh, he's at Indy. Tell us the story. Well, yeah, I mean that. Uh, just about killed himself in that in that crash in F1 um, and suffered some pretty severe burns on his hands. But he has come back with the Haas team to try IndyCar and has been massively impressive in, in the brief number of races that he's done. He's not going to do any of the ovals, and he won't be at Indianapolis. But, you know, he has had the time of his life I mean, at, the, at, the, at the Indy Grand Prix on the Indianapolis road course, which incorporates part of the oval. Like, he was right in there and, and you know, and, and podium guy. So he has taken to this series and this form of racing just about right away. And uh, the fans love him. The drivers like him. And it's kind of, a, and as we had in, in the last conversation, we had a race line here in CHML last Sunday night with James Hinchcliffe. He says it's a bit of a broken record with these F1 guys because when they come over here, they love the series. They love the evenness of it. They love the fact that even though they're not going to drive a Mercedes or a Red Bull, they do have a chance to win a race. They can be competitive right away. There's lots of great camaraderie between the drivers and the teams. I mean, when you're competing on the racetrack, it's not necessarily that way. But, man, he's adapted to this thing amazingly well. And for him to uh, – it was that, that shot of him holding his helmet after the, uh, the Grand Prix yeah. of Indianapolis. See the scar tissue on his yes. hands? Fire and open flesh does not normally go together really well. No. You can see those scars there. Even, even Rick Mears, I mean, from fires that he's had before, you can see scar tissue around you know, his nostrils and things like that. But, yeah, that's, that's the, a telling tale. But he's come over here, you know, his family's going to stay over there, but they're going to bring him here. He just loves the whole thing. He just loves the, the competitive, uh, competitive, uh, competitiveness of it. He loves the cars. He loves the, the, the way the competition is, and he has a legitimate chance. I mean, as Hinch said, and he's right, he says athletes are wired a certain way that, you know, you're competing and you want to ultimately win the prize and win races. And when you keep going year after year after year and you're just tootling around in the middle or near the back and you don't have a chance because of the way the, the you know, F1 as an example is stacked up, you don't have a chance unless you're in one of the two top cars yeah. or maybe two yeah. and a half top cars. But he's got a chance to win races here and he's having fun, darn it. And that's the main thing. And that's the, it's one of the great stories. Of, of 2021, that's for sure. I'm very surprised that he even got back in a car again after that. Yeah, I thought he was. Yeah. I thought he was in the Indy 500 this year. Obviously, he's not. He's how come he's not racing ovals? Well, he, he decides they're a little bit too dangerous. 
Yeah. And, and he's not, he's not <laughs> the only, he's not the only one. Jimmy Johnson, seven time NASCAR champ, who's lived pretty much on ovals with NASCAR, doesn't want to be going over 230 miles an hour in an Indy car on a big oval like Indianapolis or, you yeah. know, other places like Texas. But I mean, they're around it and they'll learn it and they may change their mind. And Grosjean says that I, I never said I'm never going to run ovals. He said, right now, and do you blame him after no. almost getting burned to death in a crash? Not to get in there and, and do the ultra. They are dangerous, there's no doubt about that. But I have a funny feeling he'll come around, if indeed you want to use that, and, and try ovals. And Jimmy Johnson may do that, too. And Johnson may be in the back and not finishing higher, but, uh, you know, he's getting better each and every time out there. And, of course, he's, <laughs> he's on the broadcast crew for the Indy 500 on NBC, so he's not that far from But, I mean, it's all part of the cult. Let's remember, too, that IndyCar racing was born of the oval culture, right? Mm-hmm. Camp cars and things like that on dirt to start with, and then eventually getting to uh, Indianapolis and, and and running those cars uh, front engine roadsters first, and then the rear engine uh, revolution coming in with the F1 influence. And, and you know he's he likes that, and I think that you'll find Grosjean and Johnson probably trying maybe a small oval to start with, and I think before they're all done with it, we'll probably enter. Indianapolis 500, just to get you'd, my you'd think that with all the experience that Johnson has on ovals and such, that he would feel comfortable doing that. But, you yeah. know, obviously they're in a lot closer proximity than what an Indy car is. Well, you're also uh, going a whole lot faster, too. Boy. Yeah. If, you, yeah. if you hit yeah. something, you hit something pretty hard. Yeah, you know, good point. All that protection around you. So it's a bit of a different deal. And, yeah, and these guys, too, the, the, whole, the whole mindset is changing. You've got guys realizing that I've got a young family at home. I don't want to yeah. miss that. I don't want to risk that. You know, so you had, you know, Carl Edwards getting out of the sport because of that. You had other drivers saying, you know, this isn't the be-all to end-all. And that's that's coming into the game. And it's a very realistic approach. And you can't blame the guys for wanting to handle the risk that way. So who's the favorite for this year's Indy? How's it stacking up? Well, it, short of a record, there are nine guys on this grid on Sunday, led by Scott Dixon of New Zealand. And he's a former winner in 2008. There are nine guys on this grid, Scooter, that have won the 500 before. Led by Elio Castroneves, who's got three uh, with Penske. He's not with Penske anymore. So with Meyer Shank Racing, he wants to join that exclusive club of four-time winners of the Indy 500 with Brick Mears, AJ Floyd, and Alan Sir Senior. Uh, Juan Montoya has won a couple. He's in there. Uh, Takuma Sato, the Japanese driver, has won a couple. Dixon with one. Kanan with one. Ryan Hunter Ray with a single. Rossi, uh, Will Power, and Pagano have got singles. So you know, look at any of those guys. Dixon's on the pole. Uh, you know, you go into any of these things where, where Dixon is involved, especially when he's on the pole, and it's hard to bet against that guy. But, I mean, the one surprise, I suppose, is the fact that, that Penske, and we just mentioned Will Power and Simon Pagano, have a win each, but, boy, has Penske struggled. I mean, he took over the series, bought the series, and bought the speedways of Roger Penske now, an 18-time Indianapolis 500 winner. And these guys have struggled since they rolled off the trailer when they started, you know, a few weeks ago. And... uh Wow, you're going to have to watch those guys. Here is an interesting story. I don't know what your, what your time is like, but it's an interesting story. Uh, uh, um, Simona Di Silvestro from Switzerland is, for the very first time, a female-owned race team with Peretta Autosport, mm. owned by Beth Peretta, and she's driving for that team. But here's the thing. Four of the seven over-the-wall pit crew guys, guys are going to be women, females, in wow. entire changing roles in the wow. heat of pit stops. You know, they're going to have a... a, 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 a male crew chief on the Penske side helping them out uh, to stop the car and the, and the right front tire changer, but the other tires are going to be changed. I think there's a guy you know, going to man the uh, the fuel hose, but the rest of the tire changing, which is critical, 
going to be ladies over the wall. This has never happened before. That there's a, and she's starting in the very last row, the very the very last starting spot on row uh, row eleven, the outside of it. But I mean, a female-owned race team manned mostly over the wall by females. I think that's a fantastic story as we try to forward and focus. You know, our little feature females are fabulous, but there are more and more ladies of getting into critical roles in our game, and I think that's fantastic. And that's one of the really, really great stories. Two Canadians, of course, Hinchcliffe inside of row six, Dalton Kellett from Stouffville um, on the outside of row ten. So you've got all kinds of uh, good storylines going in this thing, but. You want me to put money on somebody? Boy, if Scott Dixon is there at the end, I think he's got a chance. And as Rick Mir says, it doesn't matter where you start this race, because you can win from the front, win from the middle, win from the back. It's 500 miles. And he says, if you're on the lead lap with 50 to go, it doesn't matter who you are or where you are, you've got a chance to win this. And I think he's still right. So that's, you know, it, there's so much can happen. It's such a long race, but there's just a few names to ponder. Uh, only got about 30 seconds left. You talked. Uh, you said you talked to Hinchcliffe. Where's his head this year? Um well, there's a guy who just about killed himself, you know, in 2015 yeah. crashing, and then came back and got the pole the year later. His year so far has been a struggle in return with Andretti. But if there's a race to turn this around, because he knows how to get around this place quick. If they get the balance right in that car, he could have himself a pretty good day. And I can't think of a better place, as he said in the interview with us on CHML, on Raceline, that this is a great place to turn his season around. He's struggled up to this point. But his head is always good, and he doesn't get down too much, and he won't let it distract him. So Hinch is going to be very interesting to watch. All right, Eric Thomas with us, host of the Raceline Radio Network, heard right here Sunday nights on CHML, talking about this uh, weekend's running of the Indy 500. Eric, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well, enjoy the race. You too, lad, and we'll talk to you next time. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.